Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Jessica Hockman, pediatrician and mom of three. On this podcast, I like to talk about various pediatric health topics, sharing my knowledge not only as a doctor, but also as a parent. Ultimately, my hope is that when it comes to your children's health, you feel more confident, worry less, and enjoy your parenting experience as much as possible. So today, I have a great guest for you, Dr. Steve Hodges. And he's a professor, an author, and a pediatric urologist. And we're going to talk about bedwetting and constipation. So Dr. Hodges strongly believes that bedwetting, poop accidents, and frequent urinary tract infections often have one thing in common, long-lasting or chronic constipation. So in this episode, he talks about why there is that link between bedwetting and constipation, and he offers many solutions for parents to consider. And as a pediatrician, I can attest that chronic constipation is a very common issue, So I'm happy to introduce Dr. Hodges as a resource for families who are looking to find the right treatment for their child's toileting issues. And before you start listening to today's episode, I would be so appreciative if you would take a moment and leave a five-star review. The reviews really help others to find this podcast, which in turn helps this podcast grow. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Steve Hodges, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I so appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So tell everybody, what do you do for work? What kind of doctor are you? Yeah, I'm a pediatric urologist. Actually, just just made professor. I'm professor of pediatric urology um, at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. And so mostly a surgeon for either congenital or kind of acquired issues with the gentourinary tract in kids. Um, I've been doing it for quite a while now. Now, you're a surgeon by training. You have an interest and you've written books about accidents and toileting, correct? It's about half my practice. The other half being surgical issues, and because of that, I've seen uh, firsthand. You know, I get to see these kids, uh, lay hands on them, and see how the traditional therapies work. And that's early on in my career. I found that traditional therapies didn't work that well, and that's what led me to all this research that led me here talking to you. So it's worked out pretty well. So you're saying that half the patients that come to see you, even though you're a surgeon, half are coming to talk to you about their bladder issues and their bowel issues. Is that correct? You know, interestingly, most of the kids that come see me don't know they have uh, bowel issues, right? They're, 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 most of their issues are urinary tract-based, but when you actually look at the causes, then we under, uncover the bowel issues, and that's kind of how I guide the parents through the treatment. Like a simplistic example is like if you want, you know, our, our residents take a test every year, like an in-service exam to see the progress, and if they say, you know, young girl with a, you know, non-February, February urinary tract infections comes in, you know, what's the first thing you do, you know, is you treat the bowels is almost like A through B, A through D is, is constipation therapy. And so even though these kids come in with urinary tract infections, the cause ends up being the poop. And one thing I struggle with, just because I am a surgeon, so I probably, I don't know if it's how I was, how I'm wired or through my training, you know, you probably know a lot of people like me, I'm not good at like guiding people through the process, you know, slowly, I'm like, here's the problem, here's the solution, let's go. And so sometimes I'll scare people. I, I, people have left my office saying, I went there for a pee problem, not a poop problem. This guy's, you know, out of his mind. And so it's on me, the onus is on me to kind of explain it better, and hopefully opportunities like this will help. So first, taking it back to the beginning, I get a lot of questions from parents about potty training and when kids should be potty trained. There's a lot of, I think, pressure from maybe their... Uh, their friends, their peer groups, even preschools will tell parents that they have to be potty trained by a certain age. In your opinion, when should parents start potty training? Yeah, so early on, I was pretty dogmatic about this. And then, you know, I just realized the debates on potty training are not fruitful. It's like a 
it's a religion or politics discussion, very similar. So I try to stay out of it, and I, and I have realized that a lot of the issues that happen due to improper potty training only happen in, in people that are genetically predisposed to have those issues, so they may happen anyway. But all that being said, I don't think a kid's physiologically ready to be potty trained, meaning do the things you need to do to get to the toilet on time and empty on time, plus have the awareness that it's important to do so much before three. So I would never want to get into a another debate with that, like elimination communication folks and all that, and the, people can do what they want to each their own. But I've never seen a kid before uh, younger than three able to kind of handle the responsibility. And then once they're four, they should be trained. So I've always kind of ballparked it at about three and a half. That's kind of my, been my rule of thumb. And um, I think that early pie training is just a sign that they've quickly acquired the skill of not emptying by squeezing their sphincter, whether it be pee or poop. And emptying on time and completely is the key to kind of health in this field. And then think of it this way, like one of my examples I think is useful is what other responsibilities would you give a kid that age? And the answer would be zero. And so then why would you rush to give them the responsibility of deciding when they have to go to the bathroom? And so not that you can wait till they're really old enough to know better, but at least, you know, three and a half, four, you can have a somewhat conversation. And then as they get older, we can adjust it uh, based on that. I think I remember as a parent when I was potty training my kids, the poops just got so smelly and big and I was getting ready for them to learn how to potty train. That was my motivation. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. Um, okay, so so now I also want to distinguish between um, pee potty training and poop potty training. In your mind, is there a, is there a time difference when those two skills should be achievable? And also nighttime potty training, when should that be achieved? Correct. Yeah. So typically, kids are able to pee on the potty before they're able to poop on the potty. Pooping, I think it's funny. Pooping ain't easy. It's a good slogan. We could make T-shirts or something. But um, it, it causes a lot of trouble, right? I have a job probably because kids don't poop. It's not easy to poop. And so some kids do well, but typically they'll pee on the potty fine, but then pooping on the potty becomes an issue. And then honestly, the one the one downside of, of delaying potty training a little bit as they get older is that they're so comfortable kind of pooping in a pull-up. It's hard to transition to the toilet, um, but we have techniques to do that. And so I think um, you kind of put it out there uh, at three and a half, put the potties out there, give them the opportunity, and they'll usually do – Pee first, then poop. But if you are already constipated, so to speak, so if they've been having trouble pooping from whenever it sets up in the kids, whether it can be you know birth, six months, or, or a year, so you know or typical milestones, um, then it's all going to be difficult. So the the foundation of easy pie training is regular bowel movements that are not large, and the kid doesn't stress out about it. If you've got a kid that's having you know huge bowel movements that they have to go through a ordeal to get out every so often, then that's going to be that's a harbinger of bad things to come with potty training. And then a lot of people ask me that, like, well, how do I potty train for bedwetting? And so that's a – I don't like to use a, the phrase toilet training for bedwetting much because it's more of a natural process. And so um, typically if they are where they need to be, they should be dry at night. But once you get potty trained for four years old, and so you should be dry at night, honestly, even though the statistics are a quarter – 25% of the kids – uh, five, five and um, under at, at the age of five are are incontinent mostly at night, uh, and about fifteen percent get better a year. But you know, as you as the number gets smaller, it's just fifteen percent of that number. So it's, it's it's not like in five years they're all better. We have eighteen year olds that still wet the bed. So, and you can't predict. You can't take all the kids that are wetting the bed at five and say, okay, you're going to be dry in a year. That's why I see so many kids. They're like, hey, I'm fifteen. 
since I was five, my doctor would say, you outgrow it every at my checkup, and now it's been 10 years. Please help. And I, I hate that for him because that's a, it's a lot of laundry for something that was treatable. And also for nighttime yeah. bedwetting, there's a huge genetic component as well, correct? If I have a child who's in later elementary school years or junior high and they're still bedwetting at night, often I'll ask a parent, and it turns out one of them as well was also a bedwetter into those later childhood years. Yeah. That study that said, well, if you have a parent that outgrew bedwetting at nine, then you'll probably outgrow bedwetting at nine was it's one of the studies that I don't like because it's uh, it kind of promotes waiting to treat it, and it doesn't always work out. So there's, there's some, I feel, misinformation out there about bedwetting that kind of sabotages uh, cure in some kids, and that's one of them. So I tell people that it's not that like they they had a gene in their makeup that made them wet the bed to a nine. It's that, it's that you both – had propensity to constipation. You both had bladders that were prone to overactivity when constipated. So there's no reason we can't treat it, you know. So in other words, what you're saying is we need to first think about constipation. Yeah, I, th- I, I my opinion is bedwetting is never normal. You know, other other than the fact, you know, if you have a kid that's in a crib, that's not going to get out, get up to pee if they need to. If you have a four or five year old kid that's wearing the bed, you can fix it. You just have to treat the cause. I don't think evolution or God designed us to pee on ourselves while sleeping. I think it's a human acquired trait because of the way we go to the bathroom. So then let's talk about constipation. Why do you think constipation is such a frequent common issue these days? Yeah, I think, um, I hope this is a good analogy. I use it a lot, but I like it. Do you have, do you have kids? I don't even know. I'm sorry. I do. I have, I have three kids. You have three kids too, right? Yeah, three girls. How are you? Do your kids old enough for braces? I do have one child in braces. Yes. Yeah. Everybody, right? Invisalign, yes. Everybody, right? Why? Does that make any sense? Like, is that, like, why would that be? And so I I was asking that one day and found out it's just because the diet's changed so much that our jaws don't grow. And I think in, like, primitive human populations, their teeth are straight because they're, like, going straight from breast milk to, like, nuts or something. I don't know what they're eating, but they're not eating what we eat. And so I think it's similar is that the way we consume food and, 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 and poop has changed so much that it leads to unnatural holding. And I think, you know, you can look at diet and so forth. But the interesting thing about that is I think we're, the diet, the modern diet is so far from kind of maybe a primitive diet that even the best diets, these kids will get backed up because it, this is just m- me thinking philosophically. But if you have a parent that's with it enough to feed their kid a perfect diet, which we both know is impossible and very difficult and highly stressful, then that parent's pretty neurotic, pretty uptight. And what are uptight people? They're anal retentive, and you have an anal retentive kid, and they're going to hold their poop more. So, like, I've seen some of the most backed-up kids and, you know, really good diet. So me saying that diet has caused it is true, but I don't think it's even possible to get a good enough diet, like in modern first-world countries. It's, it's really hard. Also, the positioning of the way that we sit on the toilet is not as our bodies were designed to do primitively when it comes to going to the bathroom. Is that all? Oh, yeah, I totally think – I mean, I, I work squatty potty. I, I, I love them. It's a great company, but – Hovering on a squat is the, probably the best position, right? If you're if you're sitting, even with your knees raised, that's something. But if you actually squatted, that would be ideal. But that's not easy. I don't think how many people, modern people, can even squat. I mean, kids can, but it's hard for me. <laughs> so okay, so the first diet advice, even if if we were to give a perfect diet recommendation for parents listening, what would you recommend to help with constipation? Yeah, you know, you may not like this because you're a pediatrician, but like my recommendation is, you know. 
give them a well-balanced diet best you can because I know how hard it is. I've been there. You've been there. How hard it is to feed kids? And then, you know, if they get backed up, make up the difference with something. There's so many things out there. But I, I think you should you should watch your diet, but also keep keep in mind that it's so hard that you don't want to ruin your life out of it. You know, you could use some Miralax or whatever you want to use, and, and, and we can keep them going because I, I literally think it's that hard to do perfectly that it's yeah. almost impossible to do with just, you know, unless you're going to go out and forage raw vegetables and nuts and stuff like that. It's really hard to do. Yeah, I usually tell parents to try their best to incorporate water. You need enough water to poop well. So make sure you're drinking enough liquids and try to have a diet that's incorporating foods that are grown from the ground. So if you can think about getting enough yeah. fiber, beans, fruits, vegetables. But I agree with you. It's impossible to do it perfectly. And then, you know, you see things. I know this is not scientific, but this, you know, I have my, my N of three at my house. And my youngest, you know, brilliant kid, great kid, amazing kid, was on formula, pooping fine. We added rice cereal, completely constipated, like would not poop. And so, you know, at that point, I'm like, you know, give me a break. What can you do? You know, it's just it's just really hard sometimes. Some, if they have it in their brain to kind of hold it in, if it hurts, then they're going to hold it in. And yeah. so she started Miralax and she did fine. The two most common times when kids are constipated, when parents talk to me about childhood constipation, are one, when we start adding food into their diet. So that mm-hmm. yeah. would work with your situation with your child when you started having rice cereal. Mm-hmm. And the other time is when they're starting to potty train. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And then I'll throw in there, like you give them antibiotics for something, they'll get diarrhea, and then the moment the diarrhea goes away, that change in consistency, it's it's really hard on them. Yeah, or and vacation. That's another common time. Uh, vacation. Yeah, why? <laughs> One of my kids would always get back on vacation. I don't get that either. I, I can't come up with a good reason for that, but I guess different environment. So can you actually define what is constipation? Because there's a lot of parents that are unclear. They'll tell me my child's constipated. When I ask them, what do you mean by that? They'll say, oh, well, they they go every other day. And does that actually mean constipation? Give parents a definition of what we mean when we say constipation. Early on, prior to potty training, I'm saying, you know, make sure they're pooping, you know, every day or every other day. When I said every day, I had some people really being aggressive with it, so I felt bad. So, you know, regularly... But the main thing is it shouldn't be in their head. It should, they shouldn't be stressed out about it, right? If they're hiding in the corner, pooping with red face, that's a bad thing. So they should be playing. They pause for a second, poop, and then keep playing. That's like how much thought they should put into it. So that's what I think like pre-pie training. Post-pie training, you know, you can look for the signs of, you know, delayed pooping. Large poops is the most common sign or difficult pooping, you know, and it, but it's rare the kid that's going to sit there and be like, mommy, I can't poop or it hurts to poop. It happens, but it's rare. So what I define as constipation in my kids is like if you come to me with accidents, whether it's bedwetting, daytime wetting, or poop accidents, and I get an x-ray and there's you're storing a bunch of poop at the end of the colon, which is the rectum, then I call that constipation. And I we use that terminology because it's um easy to understand, but also I think it does cause some misunderstanding because people come in and say, my kid's not constipated. They've never, ever had a hard poop. They've never not pooped. But, you know, it, to keep these problems away that we're talking about, the accents, you have to go on time and you have to empty completely. So what I'm really saying is that they're not – they're incompletely emptying the rectum. That's what I'm defining as constipation. And so I sometimes lose people because I'll say, well, you know, constipation causes bedwetting. They hear the word and they think, well – my kid doesn't poop once a week, so they're obviously not constipated. And that's what a lot of doctors do, even urologists. will say, here's some Miralax, get your child pooping daily, and if they don't get better, then they're like, well, it wasn't the poop. And that's where people miss the, miss the boat there. 
So just to clarify, when you're describing this, if I heard a child pooping every day with Miralax, then I would also think the problem is better. Exactly. So how, can parent, how can families know it's not better? So I'm talking about two different things now. One is pre-potty training because you want them to be set up well, pooping well, and that's where the traditional example of constipation applies. But if you come to me with accidents, whatever degree, however they're pooping, the answer is it's not enough because they're not getting all the way empty because if they were getting empty, they wouldn't be having accents. So really the definition of the only way I say a child is not constipated if they come to me with accents is either they get dry or we have an x-ray that looks empty. And so that's a little tricky and what we're, we're saying is that kids – I think the assembly line analogy is a pretty good one. Like if you have an assembly line delivering product every hour, you can't just wait – 10 hours and then start taking off a package every hour, right? You have to go. You have to get rid of the, the backlog. And if you're a kid and you slightly delay pooping every day, you're going to over time, over accumulate poop in the rectum. You're not going to get it all out because you're going to stretch the muscle out. And then you start living with poop in the rectum, which no one ever designed humans to, to do that. And that's what – and that population causes bladder overactivity. And if you fill up the rectum so much – that poop starts falling out, and you didn't even know it, and that, that's what encopresis is or poop accents. So what Dr. O'Regan, who's the guy that kind of started this research and one of my mentors, said is it's not, it's not really constipation. It's incomplete emptying of the bowels and so or untimely or delayed emptying of the bowels. And so unfortunately for people, nothing really lets you know that's happening unless they present with accents or you get an x-ray. Yeah, and I like the point that you made about large poops because oftentimes I'll talk to parents who don't think their child is constipated, but when we talk about the size of the poops, I'll hear, oh, uh, my four-year-old daughter makes the, makes the size of a poop that you'd expect from an adult man. Yeah. You tell them that's constipation, and they look 100%. surprised a lot of the times. That's the that's best sign because it's so consistent. People know and they see it. And I, you know, you, I don't know how you explain it to them, but I'm like, you're jamming the colon full of poop, and then you're delivering this huge eggplant. So you have to you, – that's why it's presenting like that. So I think it's a visual that people can, can understand a little better. So what are other signs that parents can look for to notice constipation in their kids? So you talked about an x-ray, which I think is tricky because obviously parents can't always get an x-ray on their kids. So beyond that, large poops, uh, not, not pooping very frequently, so every other day might be a sign to think about. Are there any other signs that parents should notice? Yeah, the, the typical ones, like if you look at like a – what we have like in the medical literature for definitions of constipation like the Rome criteria and so forth, they're like, okay, they're pooping rarely. They're pooping hard poops. Um, um, they're, they have a sensation of incomplete emptying. They're what anybody would think about if, it was, if, they, if they heard the word constipation. But for kids, there's not, you don't have a good uh, reporter of symptoms because as a child, you know, sometimes things will be tricky is like unresolving diarrhea, right? Like if you have diarrhea all the time. You may be impacted and poop going around it. So these are some of the paradoxical ones that you don't expect. Or pooping multiple times a day, like every day they're pooping several times a day, but little small smears or small poops. That another sign they're not getting all the way empty. Um, belly pain, you know, in kids, belly constipation is one of the primary causes of, of abdominal pain, a tummy upset, and so forth. And so I, I, I tell people to look for these signs, but again, if, they, if they're coming in with accents, then I'm like, you know, it, they're backed up until proven otherwise, and. I think the x-ray, while it's, an, it's a little scary to, to radiate a kid, it's very useful um, for these kind of problems. Because it gives you objective, clear exactly. evidence that they're constipated. Yeah, and then and the, to make it a little more complicated is you know how, you have to know how to read it, like what you're looking for. Because I'm sure you've had an x-ray before. The radiologist said, you know, normal 
stool and gas pattern or whatever, and then you look at it and there's poop everywhere. And so radiologists don't really talk much about constipation. And, the, and most of the def- definitions for constipation in the radiology literature don't apply to what we're talking about, which is mainly rectal. Now, can you describe to people listening, what is the link between constipation and having, urine, and having urinary accidents? Explain how that connection exists. Sure. So I will start off with a potty training. So every, everybody knows that when you're a baby, you're peeing indiscriminately. You have no idea. You're even peeing. It's via reflex, basically. It's a, it's a sacral reflex. So the bladder fills. These nerves are activated. They, go, they send a signal to the spinal cord, the, the sacral spinal cord, which is the bottom. And then at some point, um, the body decides to empty, and it sends a signal back to the bladder to empty. But the baby doesn't even know they're peeing because it never really gets to the brain. And so... The definition of potty training is when you basically recruit the, the, the brain into this process, and so you, you fill the bladder, you know, you feel it, and then eventually you feel like, okay, I should go, and then you go actually initiate a void. That infant kind of spontaneous reflex void goes away, and then the adult pattern um, shows up, but it's not like a on-off switch. You're more prone to this kind of reflex when you're young, and as you get older, that reflex goes away, much like I, I compare it to other kind of infant reflexes that you guys see that go away you know over time but if you the, the nerves that go from the bladder to the spinal cord have to go around the rectum and so if you have the rectum full all the time then you're stretching those nerves and the brain or the spinal cord doesn't know what's stretching them it, it just knows those nerves come from the bladder if they're stretched it must be time to empty and so it will empty the bladder and so I literally see the progression of that from like a little bit of stretching with a little bit of overactivity might shoot it off at night because you're not awake. You can't stop it because, you know, the brain's involved a little bit, but just that it'll, it'll flip off that reflex. And then as you get more full, you'll have maybe some frequency or urgency during the daytime where it comes on and you feel it a little bit, but you can't stop it. Up to the extreme cases where I've had kids in my clinic that peed right in front of me. And I said, you just peed on yourself. And they go, no, I didn't. And they had no idea. Tell me if I describe this incorrectly to parents, but I'll say that when the, when the bowels are so large, it's placed anatomically so close to the bladder that the large bowels will press on the bladder and it makes a sensation that's uncomfortable and it will feel like they have to frequently void. I think that's the, the best analogy that's most, understand, uh, most understandable for parents. Um, and, you know, I think pregnant women, I've never been pregnant, but I think, you know, you get some of that with pregnancy as well. But I think the physiology of it is mostly is mostly the the, the, re- the stretching of the nerves. I think the, the kind of real estate issue is a little bit of it, but it's a lot less than the actual stretching out of the nerves, which is um, which sets off the reflex. But, yeah, it definitely can affect bladder, bladder capacity. This is interesting to clarify that it's more of a nerve issue than, than as you said, a real estate issue. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so so now if constipation is the root of most of these issues, and we talked about how, yes, changing diet in an ideal world, a primitive diet, a healthier diet would be beneficial. Let's say we've implemented all the changes that are practical for our family. What's the next step to help a child with constipation? Can we maybe talk about the laxative options and what you recommend for kids? Yeah, I'll start by saying that if, if you get to have a child with accidents, then probably diet changes aren't enough. I would save the diet changes in terms of if you're going to make large ones um, for maintaining regular bowel movements once you're emptied out. But to get empty, you're going to need pretty aggressive therapies. There's three things we usually use. Um, one is osmotic laxatives, which are 
laxatives, which basically just make the poop soft, and most commonly used would be Miralax, but there's also a prescription version called Laxalose. There's magnesium citrate, magnesium hydroxide, various versions. There's stimulant laxatives, which actually make the colon squeeze, um, and we use a lot more of that than we used to, such as uh, X-Lax, which is Senacetas or Sena. And then, you know, I can go over the whole story about how this started, but the, the kind of the father of this field of study, Dr. O'Regan, treated bedwetting in his own son, and he just went straight to the source, right? Because he proved with this manometry test that his son had a dilated rectum. He said, well, if he's got a dilated rectum, then I need to fix it. So he gave his son enemas every night, and that was his protocol, and that's what we've adopted. Um, because enemas go right to the root of the problem, which is the end of the colon, and, and get you empty. I don't want to put kids through something unnecessarily, but it is the fastest way to get empty, uh, daily enemas. Um, but we use a combination of all those um, options based on how, how aggressive we need to be, how bad the accents are, and kind of what, what the kids and the families are capable of. Interesting. So I, the reason why I'm, this is so, I'm so curious about this because a lot of pediatricians, we're, we're taught that the first approach for uh, treating constipation with a laxative is Miralax because it's tasteless, it's odorless, we can mix it in you know juice or water easily, and kids are compliant with Miralax. In your view, that would not be the first step, it sounds like. You would, you would use an enema right away? It just sounds I, so invasive. That's why I'm curious. I know, I know. I, I have a hard time. You know, I've gotten a lot of kids dry with Miralax, right? If a pretty aggressive Miralax, like daily Miralax, uh, combined with cleanouts pretty regularly. Um, and that's all I did early on because, you know, it's been a learning process because I wasn't trained in the use of laxatives and, and enemas. I had to kind of learn from other people. And so I was scared to use enemas and X-lax just like everybody else is, you know. But once I realized that the enemas were better, I used a lot of enemas. And then once I realized that like I think you mentioned that the urge to poop is kind of mild with Miralax. It doesn't lead to a lot of strong urge. Then I use a lot of X-lax as well. But if you've had, you have a child that's wetting the beds, for example, and never taken a laxative ever, Miralax is a reasonable first start. I know Miralax is a whole – the use of Miralax is a whole topic for another whole podcast probably. But you know we use it a lot, and it does fine. Um, but you don't have to use it. You can use other ones. But um, it's easy to use as a daily or as a clean-out dose because it's kind of so easy to dose. It doesn't taste – bad and easy to mix in a lot of different liquids. I use Miralax in my own kids. They did fine, but I would never force someone to use it if they didn't want to. I just want them to know that scientifically everything says, you know, that it's been safe, um, but obviously don't use it if, if you don't want to or, you think, or you've had a bad reaction, just like you wouldn't have your kid eat peanuts if they had a bad reaction. Magnesium has become a lot more popular in recent years than when I first started practicing as a pediatrician because I find a lot of parents view it as a natural laxative. Do you have any success with magnesium? Magnesium has become more popular. But the issue with magnesium is it's sold as a is, – and you know this. It's as, it's as a supplement and then as a laxative, right? And the supplement – people went by the supplement. Like I had a daughter that had to take 400 milligrams for migraines. That's like a, a, a basically a supplement dose. It may help you sleep. It might help migraines, but it's not going to make you poop any different. And the amount of magnesium you need to help you poop is quite a lot, and it's not easy to find mag citrate bottles anymore. So, yeah, magnesium fine. Magnesium hydroxide is sold, you know, and Pedalax makes some, you know, milk magnesium and so forth. But what people mess up a lot with Miralax, I mean, pardon me, magnesium is they will use a low dose and they don't really get the effect. So I'm saying use magnesium if you want to, but you really can't do cleanouts as easily with it because the taste, because you have to use a large amount. And then even the maintenance dose is a lot higher than you think. So make sure you're using the 
the laxative dose, not the supplement dose. So that's that's great advice because it is it is confusing because magnesium can be used for a lot of different. Yeah, it's for used sure. now for a lot of different things. So. Another example of that is for Senna is kind of related is that some people will you know get X-lax and they'll, or they'll get like a natural Senna from like Whole Foods or something and that's Senna leaf extract. And Senna leaf extract is non-purified Senna so the dose is – you don't know how much Senna is in it. It's just an extract. So those kids where they maybe they need 30 milligrams of pure Senna to poop, they may need 1,000 milligrams of Senna leaf extract to poop. So it doesn't correlate. So there's a couple of pitfalls I've had had people fall into. And just out of curiosity, the enemas, um, tell parents what to expect with enemas because I want to paint a realistic picture. How, how long do you expect the typical constipated kid to need enemas or other laxatives for? Because I think people are surprised at the length of time that it usually takes to recover or improve from constipation. Yeah, so I'll use Dr. Regan's data for his son and the patients he treated. He would do a three-month protocol, which sounds like a lot, but I've got bad news for you. Our protocol is longer. But uh, so if you just have bedwetting, then he would give them an enema every night for a month, and then he expected them to be cured by the end of the month, and then he would taper them off um, in two months. So the second month would be every other night for a month, and then the third month would be twice a week for a month. We developed our MOP protocol, which stands for Modified Oregon Protocol, because we're dealing with a lot worse cases than just bedwetting. We're dealing with bedwetting, daytime wetting, poop accidents which I hinted to earlier, means they're more dilated, more full of poop. And we've seen a lot more kids now than Regan ever did because he kind of stopped seeing kids after he started this research. And we found that some kids are just really hard to get empty. So we have, I think, five different protocols now that we use, all trying to find the best way to get these kids empty as fast as possible. And I don't know what – if you had the world's perfect enema you know, that would get a kid empty every time you use it, what's the theoretically fastest way you can get a kid dry? But – I think a Regan's three month is probably as fast as you can ever be in terms of getting kids dry and keeping them dry. So it's definitely a process. It's a marathon, not a sprint. What are the success rates being on these protocols? So I would say answer that two ways. One is if a kid's prone to constipation, they're going to be prone to constipation until they're mature enough to know better, honestly. And that could be, you know, you probably know people, adults that are still constipated because they don't like pooping in public or something. So if you're prone to it, you're going to be prone to it until you just get the maturity to say, you know what, I'm pooping wherever and whenever I need to if I have the feeling. Now, in terms of getting them empty enough so they won't have accidents, it depends on how many accidents they have at the beginning. If, if you start with what we call like all three phases, if you have nighttime pee accidents, daytime pee accidents, and poop accidents, it's going to take about a month for the poop accidents to go away. It's going to take about a month for the daytime wetting to go away, and then at least three months for the bed wetting to go away. So you're talking about you know half a year of kind of working on these things. But – Hopefully people hear this and they say I have a baby that's constipated. They jump right on it and you never get to that, right? Because if you have a kid that's having pee and poop accidents, they've been holding their poop for probably years at that point. Yeah, what I've learned is you want to catch it early and treat it aggressively and fix it as soon as possible so that it does not become a lasting issue into the later childhood years. 100%. I, I can't agree more. Now, is there ever a time when this isn't constipation? And like, let's say we've, let's say a parent swears their child's not constipated. You've done X-rays; they're not constipated. What are other reasons why kids may be having accidents? Yeah. So, the short answer is always constipation. But uh, there, there are rare conditions that cause it. I would hope those conditions would have been picked up previously, but obviously you don't want to miss them. So, number one would be uh, spinal cord related issues. So, some kids can't be continent, right? They're born with a condition. 
where their bladder just doesn't work. We, we're born with, some kids are born with bladders that are open, like bladder exophy or cloacoexophy. These conditions where they don't even have a sphincter, right? So they're leaking urine all the time. So they can't they can't be continent. They need surgery to and usually catheters to help them stay dry. And then there's some kids that are born with spina bifida, obviously, and spina bifida. They usually that usually affects the nerves controlling the bowel and bladder, so they they have a very hard time being continent. So, and there's some subtle things that show up, like you might have a child that had a, a small dimple on their back, and as they grow, the incontinence gets worse, which would be a sign of maybe a, a tethered spinal cord. Whereas they grow, I've had a couple people um, having missed tethered spinal cords so as the child grew, accidents got worse. I actually looked at their back, saw that, got an MRI of their back, and found out that you know this kid was never going to be continent unless they had surgery on their back. So I, I always do two things when I do exam on these kids. I, I feel their tummy and I look at their back because I think if you do those two things, at least you're picking up that. For boys and girls, there are a couple conditions that cause leaking that are very rare, but and I almost hate mentioning them because then every parent thinks their kid has it, and it, it is rare. Keep that in mind. But one is uh, posterior urethral valves, which you know about, which is a blockage in the urethra in boys. Most of them are picked up prenatally, and, and they present at birth, but some i have had one. It was really awkward because I – it shows up late, and I don't know why they show up late, but it can they can pee fine. And so you always want to make sure there's no kind of anatomic issues within boys. And then girls can have a condition where they leak urine constantly, um, like drip, drip, drip like a faucet, like they're just a leaky faucet. And that can be either from just peeing in their vagina with their legs together, which is called vaginal voiding, or they can have an ectopic ureter. And girls, if they have a kidney with two tubes coming out um, the kidney – one of the tubes can actually insert outside the bladder, uh, and it will drip urine out continuously. So if you have a girl that's always dripping urine, you need to evaluate for those conditions. But I've probably seen you know, five kids with missed valves or ectopic ureters in my life, whereas you know, I've seen thousands of kids with constipation. Okay, so just to summarize, by what age when you see accidents should we think about constipation? And your vote in terms of how to treat constipation, you're saying can be individualized from family to family and parent preference, but you tend to lean towards thinking about enemas if it's a if it's been a chronic issue. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think never I think ignoring accents in kids is just it's not it's it's a bad policy because they're probably going to get worse. You know. By what age should we really be thinking about accidents being an issue that we should yeah. ignore? Let's say like you know, anytime they're potty trained. Obviously, if they just potty trained and they're having some issues, that's fine. But if you have a kid that's been in been in underwear for a few months and they're having accidents during the day, you know, I, I wouldn't ignore that. That's that's a warning sign. It could be one of those dangerous conditions we talked about, right? So you don't want to miss it anyway. But it's likely just the poop. I think for bedwetting, five years old is a great number. During the daytime, I think what parents will I'll, I'll use a good example. Parents will say, well, they just wait to the last minute to go to the bathroom, right? They wait till the last minute. Yeah, yeah, they do. But I tell parents this, like, you go home and hold your pee until you have an accent, okay? And you can't because that's the equivalent of me saying go home and don't sleep until I tell you or go home and don't eat until I tell you. Your brain will make you eat and sleep eventually unless you have incredible willpower. And your brain will make you pee because it's a very – it's an overwhelming urge. That's what it's designed to do. So what kids have is they have this kind of hockey stick approach to the reflex where they hold it a little bit, but all of a sudden the urge comes because of that reflex we're talking about, and then it goes on autopilot and empties for you. So if that's happening, they probably have constipation. So don't explain away you know, kids' incontinence with, well, they wait till last minute because, sure, they wait till last minute to poop, but that's what's causing the pee issues 
which they probably would pee normally if they had normal sensations is what I'm saying. I do have to say I see a lot of kids that are so busy playing. They're having so much fun. They're on the playground and they're doing their thing that you can see them do the potty dance where they are trying to hold it. And you can mm -hmm. see that they you can see that their body's asking them to go use the restroom. So I do think there's some situations where kids do hold it willingly because they're they're just too young to know better. Yeah, but that, that reflex will kick off, right, where it won't in adults. And again, some of that has to do with how quickly that reflex goes away. But I mean, I've been there, right, like where you have to pee and it's like, oh my god, I got to go to the bathroom. And you know, it, it doesn't just happen. Whereas for a kid, I, I mean I'll, I'll let something out for you right now. This is crazy. You know, it was a memory that came back to me while I'm doing this. You know, It was a buried core memory, but I – in line to leave school in kindergarten and I – I'm like next to the bathroom. I remember like yesterday, and I and I peed on myself. But now that I remember back, I remember it happening. The teacher <laughs> asked me, "Why didn't you go to the bathroom?" And that was an excellent question because the bathroom was right there. And I do see accents most commonly on the way home because you know they're waiting, like you said. But at the end of the day, I did not pee purposely, and that happened like a reflex, and there was no stopping it. So it's it, we're both right, but I think if if I had normal bowels at that time. Normal, like an empty rectum, it would have. I would have had a stronger urge to pee, and that would have driven me to the bathroom. Does that make sense? It does. Okay, so yeah. so it's it's more than just. I always thought of it as just a maturity issue that children are young. They don't they don't think like we think, and they wait to the last minute. But you're saying that there's more to the story than that. I'm saying they definitely do that with poop, and since the poop's dilated, they get messed up sensations for the bladder. So what might be like a we get this gradual urge. They go from zero to hundred. And then at that point, you can't really get to the bathroom. So it's not so much the behavior as you think, otherwise, except for when it comes to withholding the poop, which leads to all this stuff. Any other insights that you'd like to share? Anything that we didn't talk about with regards to um, constipation and accidents? I think just trust. Trust. We've done this a long time. I've thought a lot about it. I promise I've thought about this a lot about this more than anybody else in the world, probably. And. You just have to trust the process. I know it sounds – it's very frustrating because these accidents just happen. But what I say, you know, treat these things in, in a kind of a three-step process. You know, you first you diagnose the bowels and you treat them aggressively, and you either do that until they're better or you you give up, right? Because some people you just can't get empty. I've I've been there, and then you can go on to medicines. There's medicines out there that can help with these problems, and then some kids it's just you don't have the time to get them empty, or you don't have the ability to get them empty. And you need them to be dry right away, whether going to college or school issues. And there are surgeries we can do for that, including sacral nerve stimulation and Botox. But if you think a kid's not full of poop and they're having accidents, just get an x-ray. Send it to me, and I'll show you what's going on, and we'll go from there. I'm happy to hear that there's other things parents can do if they're frustrated with diet, laxatives, and whatnot. They can come talk to exactly. you. Exactly. I hate for them to lose hope. You can always – if your kid's having accidents, there's a dose of Botox that will get them dry. Now, whether or not you want to go through all that without doing the first stuff you know, is kind of up to you. And I'm just curious also your thoughts. How much do, how much do you find parents' attitudes towards their kids' bowel habits make a difference? Do we influence them at all uh, to, be good, to be good poopers and peers? Yeah, I think – that's, that's a good point. I think there's three things that come to mind. One is – the genetics, right? Like, so if you if you think back to your childhood and you were withholder, then your kid's probably going to be a withholder. So you should. I tell a lot of the kids that I'm that I'm done treating, like, come back when you have kids because we're not going to let them get backed up. You know. Um, number two is everybody focuses. You know, 
diligent parents, they focus on, on, on what goes in their mouths typically. You focus on eating, um, focus on exercise. You want them to be active and not kind of sitting on a, a device all day. But elimination kind of gets overlooked, right? No one, you know, most kids come to my office and I say, when's the last time you, the child pooped? And they look at the kid, you know. No one's looking at how often they poop. No one's looking at what it looks like. So I think being more involved in the, we'll call it the third E of that kind of eating exercise elimination triad would be very beneficial. You should know what they're poop, when they're pooping, how often they're pooping, and what it looks like. And then the third concern I have with this field is that it is a common cause of abuse. Um, it's frustrating. Trust me. If you have a kid with like bedwet, sick of the wet sheets, I get it's 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 annoying. There are a lot of people that were punished for bedwetting, and and it's inappropriate because it's not their. F- I, I really want to make sure people understand that it's not something a child can control. I've never seen a kid that purposely pees or poops. I mean, I'm sure there's one out there, but I've never seen a kid that purposely pees or poops in their pants. Um, it's almost always something they can't control. So you're saying, okay, this is good for parents to hear because I do hear a lot of parents say that they're doing it on purpose, that they're too lazy to get out of bed or they're doing it intentionally. But what you're saying is kids are not doing this on purpose for the most part. Correct, yeah. And I, you know, I'm not saying – I think you should focus your efforts on the, – the behavior that's wrong is that they're not pooping when they need to. That, that's what we need to treat. So make sure they're pooping when we need to, and, and that can be treated various ways. But in terms of once the poop is packed up – and they're having uncontrollable bladder spasms or poop fallout they can't feel. You can't you can't control that. They're too far gone. So the behavior to deal with is the poop withholding and, and treat that um, early and aggressively. But yeah, I, there's no data that making them sleep in underwear so they feel the wetness that doesn't help. Making them you know change the sheets doesn't help. I mean, there's subconscious components to every disease, but it's not reliable. Thank you so much. This has been so helpful. Where can parents find you if they want to learn more from you and learn about your protocols and what you do? Yeah, definitely. I think the best way to do it is to go to our website, www.bedwettingandaccents.com. It has links to all our books, our Facebook page, all our research. And I, you know, I, I, I'm real confident in what we're doing. It helps people and it works and it's a model that explains uh, pediatric incontinence more fully than other models. So. Really encourage people to give us a look and give it a try. If you think your kid's pooping okay or you've done a week of Miralax and and they think they're empty but they're not dry yet, it's not that simple. So make sure you read through our stuff and contact us if you need help. And do you find that your patients graduate from seeing you? How long long can parents expect that they're going to have to see you for? Do they graduate within a short period of time or what's the expected length of treatment? It varies. You know, I had a kid that all I said was, it should take you 12 seconds to poop. You know that's the how average uh, the average time for a mammal to poop. And he got so obsessed with it that he started pooping right when he felt the urge, and he started pooping so quickly that he was dry like in a month. You know, pretty much on his own with a little bit of Miralax. But then I have other people that are just such a dilated colon they're on enemas for you know a year or more. And so what I would say is that you know we treat it for four weeks. If we're not better, we check an X-ray. Right, that's what I always do. I don't I don't just do enemas willy nilly. I treat it, then I check our progress, treat it, check progress. Because you could do enemas and not get empty. I know it's amazing, but you want to be doing something that's effective, not just kinda of going through the motions. I learned something new. Twelve seconds the average mammal takes to pee. Average mammal. Yeah, watch your dog next time. I, yeah, I would say my dog this morning was a, a six seconder. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean I'm not counting the, the I'm not counting the finding the spot, right? That's that's infuriating. 
She's better than the average. Yeah, but isn't it amazing how they never have trouble pooping? It is amazing. amazing. I agree. In the morning, they, they just they go right outside, and they don't think about. It. And I was thinking about that today. I literally let my dog out at the at the break, and um, it's like it's not like she had to poop then. The urge came earlier. She doesn't control when she can let it out, but she doesn't withhold it. Like if she goes out, she just goes. She's not overthinking it. We need to over, we need to think about it a little bit less when it comes to poop, for sure. So you think humans can be more like dogs? <laughs> yes, poop like dogs and be friendly I, like be friendly like dogs and be friendly like dogs. All right, twelve seconds or less. That's a I, yep. I, I I appreciate I appreciate all of your knowledge. I'm gonna think about twelve seconds or less. I and everything else you've imparted all. All of the other wisdom you've imparted, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram at Ask Dr. Jessica. See you next Monday.